The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We are at the end now of six years of our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in the last section of this book that starts with chapter number 26. I think it's a little bit amusing um, that when uh, Hannah Andrews went to college, she wondered if when she got back, we, we started the book of Matthew, I think, when she began high school, actually before high school, I think, and she was wondering if we were still going to be in when she graduated from college. And we might still be, I don't know. We, we've got a ways to go. We're in this last section now. And uh, this last section uh, starts with chapter 26, which is actually a prelude to the cross of Christ. And in this section, Jesus moves toward the event that's the pinnacle of his work, the redemption of man, which is what took place at the cross. And the cross is the outstanding event of Christianity because that's the place where Jesus met the demands of the justice of God's law and he took the punishment that we so richly deserve for the sins that we have committed. Christ on the cross is a scene for which we are eternally grateful. We think about the cross and we thank God for it. And the reason that I stand here today to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ is because he did die on the cross for our sins. And I think it's extremely important to us to to recognize that the cross was such a pivotal point in history that Jesus said that his people needed something to memorialize it. Now, we are to go beyond just the preaching of the word of God. Jesus gave us something else. He gave his church more than just preaching to demonstrate his death. He gave gave us a a vital representation of a rite that vividly pictures his death, and that is the Lord's Supper. This is what Jesus did on uh, the night that he was betrayed. Before he went to the cross, he sat down with his disciples and he gave them this beautiful emblem of his death, which is the Lord's Supper. Now, before his death, then, he gave a sign. He actually gave a picture, and he said that after he died, he wanted his church to continue to observe that sign as a lasting memorial of the marvelous work that he did on the cross of Calvary. Now, beginning in verse number 26 of Matthew 26, Jesus gave the church the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Now, I'd like you to stand with me once again as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Father, thank you for uh, this great text that we have to consider today. We ask you, Lord, that you would open our hearts to the truths that you'd have us to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
I'm often amazed when I'm preparing sermons how that some sermons that I preach, I'm just totally convinced that no one is actually paying attention. And I, I may not understand why that God gave me a particular sermon to preach. About a month ago, I was preparing a sermon uh, on church membership. And if you remember, this was just before, or just after rather, that I came back from vacation. And uh, I was preparing this sermon for the Sunday night series. We were studying the church and talking about church membership. And I thought that that was a very important sermon to preach on a Sunday morning. So we left the Gospel of Matthew on that Sunday morning. We talked about church membership. And at that time, I can't say that there were bells and whistles that were set off and the Holy Spirit opened up the heavens and there was a great sign that said, I'm supposed to preach this message. And, and uh, Jesus didn't appear to me in my bedroom the night before and said, this is the message that I want you to preach. But just quietly, without even my full recognition, uh, the Holy Spirit, I think, led me to preach that particular sermon. And I know that it was the Holy Spirit's leading because... Uh, there were people that came up to me afterwards and, and said that they appreciated the sermon, and I probably had more comments on that and helped more people than in many of the sermons that I preached in a great while. And this morning, as we come to this particular subject, I feel the same way about it, how that in the Lord's providence that we have so soon returned to this subject, a subject that I preached two times before in just the last two months, now, you, you need to understand that there are over 31,000 verses that are in the New Testament, or in the Bible, rather, and that gives me a lot of material to choose from. So it's not likely that on any given Sunday morning you'll hear me preach a message, one or two or three messages, on the very same subject. At least not, uh, maybe I'll preach a, a three-part message like this one will be. But I, I don't choose a, a subject like this to preach on often. And so I'm just impressed that the Holy Spirit has brought us to this place in our verse-by-verse -verse study of the Gospel of Matthew that we must consider again this great ordinance that God gave his church, the ordinance of the Lord. Lord's Supper. And it's extremely important, I think, to recognize that, that the Lord has given us just two ordinances for his church. And by virtue that there are only two, that tells us how significant that the Lord's Supper must be. Now, I don't think there's anyone that would argue how important that baptism is. Uh, I scarcely think that there's a member of the church that would like to go very long for not, for us not to go into the waters of baptism and see the baptistry used. And when we take someone down into the water, on those Sundays, uh, I walk down in the water and I, and I bring that person up out of the water and the whole church will break forth in applause because there has been another person who's been added to the Lord's church. Now that's a wonderful thing. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I don't think that many churches is, is the Lord's Supper so readily recognized as being a great event that takes place in the life of church members. Now what we used to do around here was we had the Lord's Supper once a month. Every beginning of the month we would have the Lord's Supper. And I know that there are churches that have it every week. But we would take the Lord's Supper once a month. And I, I, I begin to look at that and to think about it that I really don't see, didn't see as much luster to it. I didn't see as much giving thanks in it that I thought that we really should have. Now, I, I, I know that I said a moment ago that when we, when we have the, uh, the baptism of the people in the church, you know, people will clap because they're glad that a person has been added to the church. But 
We're not so exuberant when it comes to the Lord's Supper. We, we take it to the place that I think that it becomes mundane in our Christian life, and we don't recognize what a glorious privilege it is to enter in, to partake of that communion that represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what they did in New Testament times at baptisms, I have a, a feeling that there was some way that they expressed their joy for a baptism. And, I, and I, I'm not so sure that we shouldn't have some kind of exuberance and joy in our hearts for what Christ has done on the cross as we look to him as we partake, partake of the Lord's Supper. But our human nature in the frequent taking of it just does not see the significance of it. We just kind of let it go by. So what we used to do, and uh, I'm guilty of this myself, is that we would take the Lord's Supper and tack it on to the end of a Sunday night service with all the other things that we had to do. And as I said, I began to think about that. I began to look at it. And I didn't think that that was right. And so we changed it to where we have the Lord's Supper once a quarter. We have it at the beginning of the quarter. And on that night, I'm able to prepare a special sermon to deal with the Lord's Supper. And we focus all of our attention and concentrate on that one particular thing. Now, we look at this text today, and here the Scripture says, and as they were eating. I want to stop there for just a moment. Now, let me say this as we enter into a study of the Lord's Supper, that we don't believe... We do believe it's very important, but we don't want to take it further than what the Scripture demands. We're not going to do as some churches do and say that in order for you to be saved, in order for you to receive the grace of God, that you must partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, some people call it a sacrament. We don't. Because we don't believe that there is any grace conferred upon anyone by taking the Lord's Supper. We don't think that you need any more grace than what you've been given to come to Jesus Christ in faith, believing in him alone. And so we're not commanded to take the supper because that's an element of being saved. But we go to this text and the scripture says, and as they were eating. Now, why were they eating? And we ought to know the answer to that question. This wasn't just a common meal because they were famished. If you go back up to number 18, it tells us the answer to that question. It says that the disciples had gone or Jesus had them to prepare a place where they could observe the Jewish ceremony of Passover. Now, if you do some studying on this, you'll find a lot of information about how the Jews observed the Passover. Uh, commentators and preachers will talk about the various stages of the meal, and how it has all these different little nuances to it. You, you can study about how they use four cups of wine in the observance of the Passover feast. Uh, you can read about the singing of the Hallel, which we will talk about in a sermon a little bit later on. And you read about all these different things, and those things are interesting. But I don't think it's as important for us to learn, as important for us to learn what the Jews did in the Passover, as it is for us to see how Jesus took the Lord's Supper, how he changed the Passover and made, the, made the, uh, the Passover meal all about him. And what he did was to change the old supper into a new supper. Now, let's make that the first observation. And you can write this down in your listening sheet. It's as far as we're going to get today. And that is the transformation of the Passover. The transformation of the Passover. Now, most often... 
This passage is referred to as the Last Supper. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting is called The Last Supper, and it was the Last Supper in regards to the celebration of Passover. Now, what I don't want to do today is to hurt anyone's feelings, but I, I am afraid that I have to emphasize this, and I don't know if it will bother you, it shouldn't, but I have to emphasize that this was the last authorized celebration of Passover. After this, the Passover never needed to be celebrated again. Now, for 2,000 years, the Jews have continued to celebrate Passover, but that observance is hollow, it's without meaning, because Christ is the new Passover, and he supersedes the old. The old has been done away with because of Christ's death on the cross. Now, for 1,500 years, it was all right for Jews to observe Passover because that's what God commanded. On the night before the children of Israel left the bondage of Egypt, Moses was told about Passover. And the Passover was the last plague that forced Pharaoh to end Israel's bondage. Now, the last plague was the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn in Egypt died on that night of men and animals. They all died on that horrific night when God gave them the Passover. Now, you think about that for just a minute, that we're not talking about two families or ten families. We're not talking about 500 people dying or 1,000 people dying. But all throughout the land of Egypt, over the entire nation of Egypt, there were people in, in homes that woke up to find their children dead. They woke up to find animals out in the fields that were lying dead. And there was only one protection from that horrible death, and it was to kill an innocent little lamb and to take its blood and smear it on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses. So the, a little lamb, an innocent lamb, was slain, and that blood was applied. And then the people would enter into the door of their houses, and there they would stay until the Passover angel came. Now, that was a very simple solution. Very simple, but it was the only solution to escape the death of the firstborn. And so on that night, the death angel came, and he came to the door of the house, and if there was blood on the door of the house, then the death angel passed over that house. Then he went on to the next house, and if he saw blood on the door of that house, he passed over the house, and he went on to the next, and on to the next. And in those cases where there was blood, the death angel did not enter, but he left that house, and those people were protected from the wrath of God. But the houses that didn't have the blood, the firstborn weren't safe, and so the death angel entered into that house and killed the firstborn of the family. Now, I don't know exactly how that happened. I don't know what it looked like. Cecil B. DeMille, in his film, The Ten Commandments, thought that he knew what it looked like. And so in his scene, he had a green smoke that entered into the house and circled the bodies of the uh, firstborn, and the firstborn died. Now, if you've ever read a description of angels in the Bible, you might have a very much different picture in your mind of what that looked like. But at any rate, the book of Exodus tells us that on that night, there was a great wail that went up because there were so many that were killed. Thousands upon thousands were killed because they did not listen. And Pharaoh, with all of his power, could not escape death even in his family. In Exodus chapter 12 and verses 29 and 30, 
It says, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon. I want you to notice that particular phrase, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the captive that's in the dungeon. And there we see the wide scope of the death angel's power, that he took not only the greatest of the land, but he took the weakest of the land as well. He took the powerful and he took the insignificant, and everyone that was in between. And it goes on and says, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, For there was not a house where there was not one dead. There was not a house where there was not one dead. Now, every family that has children has a firstborn child, don't they? And there was not a household in all of Egypt that was not hit hard by the excruciating pain of the death of a child. Well, we look at that and we wonder, why was God so relentless in punishment? Well, there's a lesson to be learned. This wasn't just a last-ditch effort to knock the props out from under Pharaoh so that he would let the people go. No, there's significance in this that the lamb that was slain represented Jesus Christ. And it tells us that all people, from the smallest to the greatest, from the richest to the poorest, no matter who you are, we all stand under the penalty of God's wrath. We must be delivered from God's wrath. And the only way that we can be is by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That picture shows us that we can look to no one else. That lamb shows us that there is no other solution. Only Jesus Christ can save a sinner. And so the blood of Christ has to be smeared on your heart by faith, and by faith in what that blood can do. And then when God sees that Christ's blood has been applied to your heart by faith, then his judgment will pass over you. Why does it pass over you? Because it did not pass over Christ. He took the pain. He was crucified for you. And so he took the pains of the death angel by suffering eternal hell for you. And because of what he did for you, you don't have to experience the wrath of God in the eternal flames of hell. Now that was a picture that was repeated over and over again in Israel for 1,500 years. But here we come in this text to the time that... The picture is about to become the reality. The death of of the lambs for all those years could never take away a single sin of any individual. The lamb that was slain then was not the actual protection from the death angel. No, the real protection actually came from the blood of the lamb, and the lamb is Jesus Christ, and he's the lamb that takes away sin forever. So the real lamb died And now there is no longer any need for a Passover lamb. No longer a need for the picture of Passover. Jesus ended it on this night here in Matthew chapter 26. So what I'm trying to tell you is that every Passover since is unauthorized. There is no need for it. And every Passover celebrated today, every picture of Passover today, diminishes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, you see, the Jews don't believe that Christ is the Lamb, and that unbelief sounds the death knell in every Jewish home. And so we have no sympathy for the Jewish Passover. Now, the next statement that I want to make is a strong one. I know it's not politically correct, 
But I'm not so concerned about being politically correct. I'm more concerned about being religiously correct. And that is that the Passover is a useless blasphemy against God. And you can understand why that the, the Jews of Jesus' time were so upset by the gospel of Christ because what it did was to change 99% of all their religious practice. And folks, ignoring the death of Jesus Christ today is an extremely dangerous thing to do. You don't want to be caught there. And that's why we have a sign over the entrance to the auditorium that says that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so this Passover was the Last Supper. But the Last Supper was transformed. It was changed into the First Supper. It became the First Supper of the New Testament church. Now as Passover then was to continue until the real Passover lamb was sacrificed, so the Lord's Supper is to be observed until Jesus comes for his church. Now I'd like for us to see how Christ changed things. It says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus took the bread. The bread that he took was unleavened bread. And for those of you that may be uninitiated, unleavened means that the bread was made without yeast. Yeast, of course, is what causes the bread to rise. Well, they didn't have gold metal self-rising flour. There was none of that. But what they did have was a, a starter piece of dough in which was the yeast, and they would put that into their bread, and they would begin a new batch of bread. And, of course, that yeast in there would multiply, and the bread would begin to rise. But on the Passover night, they couldn't use that starter piece of dough because they were in a hurry. There was no time to wait for the bread to rise. What God told them to do was to eat this meal with their shoes on because as soon as the news hit that the deathborn had died, the firstborn had died, Pharaoh was going to be anxious to get rid of the children of Israel. And so God wanted them to be ready at a moment's notice to get up and leave because when the Passover was over, Pharaoh was going to get them out of the land fast. Now, most often, we as Bible students think of leaven as a type of sin. And sometimes the Bible uses leaven in that way. For example, Jesus told the disciples to beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he used that to represent their sinful, self-righteous practices. But in the Passover, the idea of leaven is not really about sin, but the unleavened bread was because they believed that God would quickly deliver them from bondage in Egypt. And as soon as the Passover was done, that's exactly what God did. He delivered them. And so the Jews continued to eat unleavened bread to remember what had happened on that night. Now, by the time of Jesus, they'd long since stopped eating it without their shoes on. And that's because they weren't going anywhere. They were where they were supposed to be. But they continued on with the, with the picture of the unleavened bread to remind them of what happened on that night. And so the only way that sin actually enters into the picture here is that they were delivered from Egypt, which is a type of sin. But the bread is not actually tied to that. It's not actually a picture of sin. But when Jesus took the bread and he broke it, when he took that unleavened bread, he changed things. He took it and he blessed it and he broke it 
and he gave it to the disciples. Then he said, take, eat, this is my body. Now right there, the disciples must have been in utter amazement. They had never heard this before. Not once in any Passover celebration did anybody ever say, this bread represents my body. Not one time did they ever hear that bread was emblematic of this lamb that they were eating. Well, they had a lamb. They didn't need a symbol. They had the lamb that they ate. But here in the Lord's Supper, no longer are they going to have a lamb. We don't have a lamb in the supper because the lamb has been killed. And so in the institution of the supper, things are changed. There is needed a picture that represents that lamb. And the bread is the body of Jesus Christ represents that. And the fact that there is no leaven in that bread does represent that Jesus Christ had no sin. Now what do you think that the the disciples thought that the Passover symbolized? Well, let's take our Bibles and let's go back to Exodus 12 where the first Passover was given. The Passover would be kept for generations afterward, and the children that were born in later years would would not have experienced the Passover night. And so they needed to know, why did the whole nation keep, keep doing this ceremony of Passover? Now, we teach our children about the Lord's Supper. We explain why Christians do it. And the Jews did the same thing with the Passover. Now, if you look, uh, beginning with verse number 23 of Exodus 12, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever, And it shall come to pass when ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. Every time that a Jewish family sat down to eat Passover, the father would tell this story of how that Israel was delivered from Egypt at the first Passover. Now let me comment on that for just a minute. The fathers told their children what Passover represented. And fathers, it is your responsibility to teach your children about the Lord. There is nothing in the world that is more precious than a soul And if you are a loving father or even a loving mother, there's nothing that you consider to be more precious than the soul of your own children. This is something very important. We need to teach our children about the Lord. And if you truly do love your children, this is what you'll do. You'll keep them in the place where they can learn about Jesus Christ. You'll teach them that at home, and you'll bring them to church to sit in their Sunday school classes, and and then later to come to the preaching in in this part of the service, or wherever they uh, are, are in the church, and they can learn about Jesus Christ. And I know that there are some who encounter opposition because of that. There may be a husband or a wife who doesn't want you to do that, And for the sake of peace in your family, you may decide that you're not going to do it. You just want to deal deal with it. 
And you really don't understand the seriousness of that decision. Because what you have done, you have put the peace of your family and the peace with your husband or your wife above the value of a child's eternal soul. And you can't slack off in this responsibility. Because when you do, you show that you love your husband or your wife more than you do Christ. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus addressed this, and he said that the gospel is going to cause division in your family. But he also said, it doesn't matter. He said, you must love me more than any member of your family. Now, following Christ can be a very tough thing to do. He never told us that following him was going to be easy. And contrary to what some people say, Christianity is not the end of all of life's problems. No, faith in Christ makes it so that you have peace with God and you have peace with other people of God, but there is no guarantee at all that you're going to have any peace with the world. So the meaning of Passover in Exodus 12 is as it describes, that God said to Moses, this is what you are going to tell your children when they ask you, what does this mean? Now that scripture was in the mind of the disciples when Jesus said this. This is what their fathers told them. This is what Passover means. This is what they told their own children. This is why we do the Passover. But now Jesus handed them a piece of bread and he said, this bread is my body. And what he did was he transformed the meaning of it. He changed the symbolism of that bread. And so now we have a new supper that has new representations. And now the disciples must surely have been in shock because 1,500 years of history was now gone. They were never going to celebrate another Passover again. Now it has become the Lord's Supper. Well, here's where things begin to go awry. There is a false Christianity that has abused this scripture. And they take the words here that Jesus blessed it and break it. And they twist the words of Jesus. Now first let me say that the breaking of bread is symbolic of a violent death. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But breaking the bread, that's the body of Christ and it shows that it's been truly, uh, cruelly treated. Jesus didn't die of a heart attack, a long illness, that was not going to do. No, the breaking of the bread and drinking of the cup tells us that it was a violent death. When I stand there behind this table on a Lord's Supper night and I begin to break the bread, I'm showing you that Jesus died a violent death. His body was seriously abused. Now we know that there were no bones that were broken in his body, but we do know that his flesh was terribly mutilated. Now the false Christianity twists the meaning of Jesus' words that Jesus took the bread and they say that Jesus transformed it in a different way. That he turned the bread into his actual body. And they say that Jesus changed it and when their priest hold up the bread and consecrate it and when they hold up a cup of wine and they consecrate it, they change it into the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they'll tell you that if you don't believe that, you're cursed. They say you are anathema, that means separated from God. And they will tell you that if you don't observe their mass, that you can't have the grace of God. And so they put salvation into this blasphemous, monstrous ritual that they've created. Now, if anyone is anathema, they're the ones that are anathema. 
Because Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 that that is a perversion, it's a false gospel, that salvation is not in sacraments, it's not in rituals. And he said that if a person doesn't believe the gospel that he preached, which is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, then that person is cursed. Well, is there a problem in the Scripture? When Jesus said, this is my body, did he mean that he was handing them a piece of his actual flesh? Was it a toe? Was it a piece of his liver? Well, of course not. Oh, they were sitting with him. He was in the flesh. They knew that they weren't eating his flesh. Do you think the disciples would have thought anything like that? Do you not think that there would have been protest? Do you don't think that there would have been a lot of questions that have been raised at that? The disciples, if they thought that they were eating human flesh? Now, I'll tell you this. The disciples were confused about a lot of things that Jesus said... What about this? I mean, wouldn't this be your thought if you were told this? There, there's something strange here happening, something wrong. I have questions about this. Would you not raise an eyebrow if I handed you something and said, this is my flesh that you're eating? Now, the disciples had a hard time with other things that Jesus said, but they certainly weren't cannibals. They would have asked something about this. I mean, they expected nothing and believe nothing like Jesus was giving them his actual flesh. Well, the Roman Catholic says, well, no, the, the bread still looks like bread, and it, it still tastes like bread, but it's really his flesh. And the explanation that they give only adds another layer of confusion, because how can it be real flesh and not taste like flesh and look like flesh? And so we find the disciples here with no questions at all, it's not in their makeup not to ask questions. It's not in their makeup not to go around that table with every hand raised, 12 times hands raised, to ask, what are you talking about? How can this be your flesh? But we find no questions. Now, what's the solution to that? Only the most reasonable one, that Jesus was speaking symbolically. Do you remember that he said that I am the door? Did anybody ever frisk him to see if he had a doorknob? He said that I am the manna that came down from heaven. Did anybody ever go up to him and lick him to see if he tasted like wafers that were made with honey? Of course not. Oh, Jesus often talked this way. He used these kinds of examples. Let me give you another one. He talked about his death and his resurrection. And he told the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, did he mean that his body was a huge temple that contained all the vessels for sacrifice? And the Jews were to come to him and come into his body and there that they could worship in the temple? Well, of course not. And the Jews got in trouble when they missed the symbolism of what he said. And Roman Catholicism misses the symbolism. And what they try to do is they try to make something real that was never intended to be real. And they try to make something that will save you that was never intended to save you. Well, here's another interesting point to be made. On this night, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus gave the supper, he told the disciples they were to keep doing this until he came again. And so in 1 Corinthians, we find the Apostle Paul teaching the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper. And this is exactly what they did. They continued to break bread. Now, I read that just a little bit facetiously to you in, in Acts chapter 2 a moment ago. They did continued into the disciples' doctrine and breaking of bread. That actually refers to the Lord's Supper. So they continued to partake of the Lord's Supper. The church did as Christ commanded. 
Now the point that I want to make is that the Roman Catholic Church did not develop the doctrine of transubstantiation until the 11th century. Now transubstantiation, that just means they can change flesh into bread, or bread into flesh, and they can change wine into blood. That's the doctrine of transubstantiation. But they didn't come up with that doctrine until the 11th century. And then it took them 200 years to get that accepted among their own people. And so at the Fourth Lateran Lateran Council of 1215, this was declared to be official doctrine. So do you know what that means? It means that for more than a thousand years, there was nobody that knew that they were eating the flesh of Christ or drinking his blood. They couldn't have known it because there was no priest that ever consecrated consecrated it as such. Never a priest did that. And so that would tell us then, if they're right, that for 1,200 years, the Lord's Supper was never celebrated. The church didn't continue to celebrate it because they were doing it wrongly. Now let me tell you about that. This is nothing but pure fabrication. That is a lie. It's a blasphemous lie against Jesus Christ. And folks, I can't live with that lie. I can't be nice about that lie. And that's why the Berean Baptist Church will never hold hands with Rome and will never think of them as anything other than the great whore of Revelation 17. I mean, what else can we say about it? It's a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It sends people to hell, and we can't accept that perversion and pretend that it's okay. No, if you're going to be saved, you have to believe in the Jesus Christ represented in the Bible and not a Christ that's been invented by a heretical church. So we're not going to hold hands with Rome. We're not going to call the Pope the vicar of Christ or even a godly man. He's Antichrist, and we're not afraid to call him Antichrist, and we want nothing at all to do with him. Now let me make another point that I hope you find interesting. That back in the 19th century, there was a... Roman Catholic priest named Charles Chenicky. And this priest became very concerned about the practices of Rome, and he began to question what they did. And uh, he didn't see how that he could uphold the hypocrisy and sin that was rampant in that church. Now, later he was converted to become a true Christian, but he wrote a book that was entitled 50 Years in the Church of Rome. And that book is still available today. You can get that and read it if you want. In fact, you can find it free on the internet. You can read it on your computer if you like. And Father Chenequi, as he was known then, began to wonder about this doctrine of transubstantiation. He ministered at a time when, the 19th century, when conditions are not as sanitary as they are now. So he noticed one day that as he was giving the Mass... That he lifted the bread, he consecrated the host, as they call it, and he changed the bread into the body of Jesus Christ. But he noticed that there was a little mouse that crawled up on the table and began to eat the bread. And so he began to wonder, well, did the mouse eat the body of Christ? And that was a problem to him. And that was actually a doctrinal concern in the Roman Catholic Church that was addressed back in the 13th century by Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the Roman Catholic's greatest theologians. And Thomas Aquinas had to defend this doctrine of transubstantiation. And so he declared that if a mouse eats the bread, eats the host after it's been consecrated, that it turns back into regular bread. And the mouse does not eat the body of Christ. Now, you might think that's kind of silly. Well, it is kind of silly in a way. But I suppose that 
A mouse has as much power over the bread as a Roman Catholic priest does. He can turn the bread into flesh, and a mouse can change it back into bread. Now, you see what kind of ridiculous things that you run into and you begin to pervert the Word of God? When you come up with all these strange doctrines, when you miss the truth of God's Word, you're going to run into problems. And so theologians have to spend their time musing about whether uh, bugs and beasts and four-footed creeping things can eat the body of Jesus Christ. Now let me explain something else. That if I could change the bread into the flesh of Christ, that I would have a real problem. Julie Zamacona, uh, I think she's sick today. She's not here with us, but she makes the bread for us for the Lord's Supper. She makes unleavened bread. I happen to know that she and her girls love that stuff. And I don't know, but after we're done, sometimes they may take some of that bread and eat it. And uh, I would have to wonder, well, are they devouring the body of Christ? And so I'd have to go home with them, and i have to change it back into bread, that crunchy bread, or at least get me a mouse to do it for me, and we just have to change it all back. Oh, these are just ridiculous positions that you come to when, you, when you're not considering the Word of God truthfully. And it's hard not to make light of all that. But folks, let me tell you, this is a very serious issue. Where we're talking about something that's very, very serious. The Lord is not pleased when His Supper is not observed in the right way. When somebody takes this beautiful emblem that He's given to represent His Son and turns it into wild-eyed silliness... So what we need to do is to stick with the Bible and let Thomas Aquinas and their pope do the popes do the business do their business with the devil. Now here though is the truth that you need to know. Jesus Christ went to the cross. His body was broken, his body was beaten, his visage the Bible says was marred more than any man. And that means that Jesus was so horribly beaten that he was unrecognizable. And the truth is, he was willing to take that beating. He was willing to suffer all of the pain and the humiliation of the cross, willing to do it because even he said that I could call legions of angels to deliver me if I want. But he didn't want that. What Jesus wanted to do was to give his life for people that hated him. He wanted to give his life for people that were terrible sinners against God. He wanted to give his life for those who cared nothing at all for him and to redeem them as a people for himself and return them to fellowship with God. And so Jesus went to the cross in an act of mercy and grace that is unparalleled in all of the history of mankind. And the truth that you need to know is that he was willing to do it for every person that believes in him. He accepted the pain and the suffering and the humiliation of the cross for wicked, hell-deserving sinners. Do you know what we deserve? We deserve the death angel. We deserve the death angel to come into our houses and to take us and to kill us and take us right into hell. But instead, we can believe in Jesus Christ and we receive the Christ of eternal life. And so, friend, today, you can believe. I mean, you can be saved by believing in that sacrifice. You don't have to keep a sacrament. You don't have to go through a ritual. You only need to come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Now, next time we're going to come back to this subject and we'll go into more of what Jesus did in the Lord's Supper. This is a very important ordinance. It deserves all the time that we can give it. 
And if you're a Christian, what you should do, you should be a part of the church and you should be in a place where you can observe the Lord's Supper because it is so important for us to do this. He commanded us to do this until he comes again. It's just a beautiful emblem. It's remembrance of the cross. And that's what Christ said. He said, I don't want you just to preach it. I want you to visualize it. And and the Lord knows that we are visual people. We like to see things. And so there are some times when he allows us to see. And he gave us a beautiful picture. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for the blessing of Jesus Christ coming into this world to be a sacrifice for our sins. And we know, Lord, that it was you. It was you, Father, that put him on the cross. Though men were instruments, though Romans and Jews put him on a cross, yet you, the Heavenly Father, decreed that it would be so, so that you could save your people from their sins. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of some lost soul today. Help them to see there is no way but Jesus Christ. Just as the people in Israel in those days long ago could not escape the death angel without the blood of the Lamb, neither can we today escape death in the fires of hell without the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our hearts. So we ask, Lord, that you would speak to some soul today, cause them to come to you in repentance and faith. And then, Lord, for Christians today, I I hope, Lord, that you would help them to see the significance of this great emblem of the cross of Jesus Christ and that they would prepare their hearts to to come to the supper when we're ready to partake, to keep their lives uh, every day lived so that they can come to the supper without any reproach. Thank you, Lord, for the great blessings that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.